You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hi, folks. Be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. Hi, folks. Dr. History here with another story from the Old West. Now, last week, uh, we did episode number one of the Mormon Exodus, and I kind of went through the history of how the Mormon Church was organized and their leader, uh, Joseph Smith, Jr., and how they came to uh, kind of be driven out of Missouri and Illinois. And uh, so now we're going to continue on with the actual exodus that took them out west to the Salt Lake Valley. And as I mentioned, Salt Lake became known as the Crossroads of the West. So here we go. April 16th, 1847, Brigham Young's first wagon company organized at a place west of Winter Quarters. Now, some camp members were assigned specific tasks. Now, there's a guy by the name of William Clayton, and he was appointed company scribe and was expected to record an accurate description of their journey and the distance they traveled each day. Now, after three weeks, Clayton got a little tired of personally counting the revolutions of Wagon Wheel and computing the day's distance by multiplying the count by the wheel's circumference. Now, can you imagine walking beside a wheel and counting every revolution? So, uh, he designed a mechanism consisting of a set of wooden cogwheels attached to the hub of a wagon wheel with the mechanism actually counting or recording by position the revolutions of the wheel. Clayton's design, which he called the the rhodometer, uh, obviously preceded today's odometer on our vehicles. Now, the Salt Lake Valley in what is today uh, obviously the state of Utah in the United States was owned by the Republic of Mexico, which soon after went to war with the United States over the annexation of Texas. Now, the Salt Lake Valley became American territory as a result of this war. So about 70,000 people, beginning uh, with advanced parties, set out by church leaders in March 1846. They took the journey. Now, the well-organized wagon train migration began really uh, in full steam and earnest in about April of 1847 and, again, is known as the Mormon Exodus. And a typical day started with the camp. They were awakened by a bugle at about 5 o'clock in the morning, and the company was expected to be ready to go, ready to travel by 7 a.m. Now, each day's travel ended at 8.30 p.m. with a bugle sounding to signal prayers in their wagons. The camp was in bed by 9 p.m. The company traveled six days during the week, but generally stayed in camp on Sunday to observe the Sabbath. Now, this is probably pretty normal procedures for most wagon trains, and stopping on Sunday was probably not unique to just the Mormons. Now, each teamster is to keep beside his wagon with loaded gun in hand or within easy reach, while the extra men was to do the same regarding their weapons and to walk by the side of their particular wagon. Now, no man was to leave his position or his post without permission. So it was well organized. Uh, 
Now, in case of an attack by Indians, the wagons were to travel in double file, then form a circle with the animals inside the circle. Now, the intended route of travel was to be on the north side of the Platte River through southwest Nebraska to Fort Laramie in uh, eastern Wyoming, then back to the south side of the Platte River along the Oregon Trail in southern Wyoming, over the Continental Divide, through South Pass to Fort Bridger in the southwest uh, part of Wyoming, then through what they call Immigration Canyon and down to the Salt Lake Valley. So that was the route they were planning. Now, obviously, there was no mail service back then. The wagon trains were always glad to see someone headed east to take mail back to other people. There's a guy by the name of Charles Beaumont. He was a trapper, and he was headed east when he met up with a Mormon wagon train. And he cheerfully agreed to carry letters back to families that had been left behind. They also actually placed posts at different points along the road with letters in boxes, and sometimes they actually used buffalo skulls to write messages on. Now, at Fort Laramie, they crossed to the south side of the Platte River. They hired a flatboat owned by a French man named Bordeaux, and he ferried them across. He was very friendly, and ironically, Bordeaux told them that past Missouri Governor Lilburn Boggs had crossed there just a few days before, headed to Oregon. You remember, he was the governor uh, back there. Keep in mind, folks, the Salt Lake Valley was a desolate place. Little vegetation, some stubby salt grass, sagebrush, some small canyon streams, and not much to look at. And I'm sure some of the immigrants must have wondered, uh, uh, what was Brigham Young thinking? In fact, Jim Bridger, the mountain man that I've talked about uh, in the past, met Brigham Young as they were traveling and bet him $1,000 for anyone who could grow corn in the Salt Lake Valley. Well, nevertheless, on the 24th of July, 1847, Brigham Young entered the Salt Lake Valley two days after the first scouting party. Now, at this time, Young was sick, and he was actually lying in the back of a wagon. He asked the driver to turn the wagon so he could see the valley. Then the famous words from Brigham Young, this is the place, drive on. Well, they entered the valley and camped with the vanguard scouting party who were already there. They'd found their promised land where they could live in the midst of the Rocky Mountains. Now, as I mentioned in the beginning, Salt Lake is called the crossroads of the West. Many wagon trains traveled through Salt Lake where they were able to trade their tired, worn-out oxen and horses for fresh animals. They were also able to replenish their supplies and continue on their journey. Now, the state bird of Utah is the American seagull. And there's a story behind how they chose the seagull. That may sound a little strange, but you'll understand when I tell the story. When the Mormons arrived in late summer of 1847, it was late to be planting a lot of crops. It was important that they have a good harvest in the summer, the next summer of 1848. Well, they had built three sawmills in the mountains and a grist mill. They planted over 5,000 acres of crops, of which 900 was winter wheat. Everything was looking good. With the aid of irrigation, it appeared they would have a great harvest for the next year. Anyway, in the months of May of 1848 and June, huge armies of crickets came down the mountains and into the valley and began to destroy the crops. Well, they didn't know what to do. 
Trenches were dug around the fields and filled with water in hopes of stopping the crickets. This didn't work. Fire didn't work either. They even tried to beat them back with clubs, brooms, anything they had. Nothing was working. Well, it looked like all was lost. But then thousands of seagulls came flying into the fields. Now, at first, the Mormons thought this was another plague. However, they soon found the seagulls were eating the crickets. Now, here's the strange part of the story. The seagulls would eat crickets, then fly to the streams, drink, and vomit, then return to eat more crickets. Now, since that time, the seagull has been looked upon as a sacred deliverer, and it is against the law in Utah to kill a seagull. Well, in the end, the harvest was not great, but it was enough to get them by until the next year. Well, with the exodus, there were many of the Mormons who didn't have the money to make the trek. So the Mormons came with a program called the Perpetual Immigration Fund. So the plan was to start a fund with $5,000 and loan this to those headed to Utah. Now, they, in turn, would pay back to the fund to be used by more Mormons heading west. Now, church historians say the fund helped about 500 wagons to make the trek. And as with most pioneers headed west, they came with oxen, mules, horses with heavy wagons, loaded with as much as they thought necessary. Now, most people walked beside their wagons, which was probably easier than riding in a rough wagon. And if you've ever ridden in a wagon, I mean, they are rough, going over rocks and brush and hills. Anyway, with so many Mormons headed west, the church leaders decided they need to figure out a cheaper way to help them make it to Salt Lake. Now, some of the early members had used hand carts to make the trek to Salt Lake and had made it safely and actually pretty comfortable. Church leaders suggested the hand cart as a means of helping get the saints from Iowa to Salt Lake. Now, they were built to Brigham Young's design with two wheels five feet in diameter and a single axle four and a half feet wide, and the whole thing weighed about 60 pounds. Now, running along each side of the bed were seven-foot shafts or pull shafts that ended with a three-foot crossbar at the front. I hope you can picture this. You can always look it up on the Internet. The crossbar allowed the carts to be pushed or pulled, and cargo was carried in a box only about three feet by four feet with about eight inches of walls. Well, the hand carts generally carried up to about 250 pounds of supplies and luggage, uh, though they were capable, actually, of handling loads as heavy as 500 pounds. And carts used in the first year's migration were made entirely of wood. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Now, the first handcart companies headed west in June 1856 with about 266 Mormons. Two days later, another group headed out with about 220, and a third group a few days later. So, folks, consider this. If you had only a wagon to head west in, what would you decide to take with you? Now, if you only had a handcart, that would limit you even more what you could take. 
And even then, a lot of the travelers headed west. They would leave items along the trail, realizing they needed to lighten their loads. So really, the Oregon Trail, not just with the Mormons, but uh, all along the Oregon Trail, there were uh, mirrors and even pianos and things that they decided they could live without. Now, I can only imagine traveling 1,300 miles with my family, with all our possessions in a handcart, over the plains, the mountains, crossing rivers and streams. Now, I would suppose my six kids would help by pushing. And, well, these first handcart uh, hand companies made it by September. So they uh, made pretty good time. Now, although a lot of the Mormons made it safely to Salt Lake, there was a tragic event that occurred with two groups of handcart companies. And this is kind of a famous uh, uh, story among the Mormons, and I'm just going to tell you what happened here. In 1856, two companies were prepared to head west. Now, most of these immigrants were from England and Scandinavia. They arrived in Iowa City, which was the starting point, about the 1st of July. Now, unfortunately, the immigrants discovered their tents and handcarts were not ready to go. So it took time to get all their gear ready. Now, the delay was dangerous, as they should have never left any later than the middle of July, due, obviously, to the possibility of encountering bad weather. Well, the Mormons had a tough decision. They discussed if they should stay for the winter or try to make it. Well, the first company, under the command of a guy named James Willie, left Florence, Nebraska, August 19th. So you can see they're already late into the summer. A second group, under the command of Edward Martin, left two weeks later. We're almost into September. Well, a man by the name of Levi Savage warned the people not to go. He said he'd been over the route. He knew the dangers they would encounter. He told them. Some members of the company, uh, perhaps as many as 100, decided to spend the winter in Florence or in Iowa. But the majority, about 404 in number, including uh, Savage, uh, continued the journey west. Now, actually, with both companies, we're getting up around 1,000 to 1,100 people. So the two companies headed west, and everything was going pretty good other than breaking down of carts and a little anxiety regarding Indians as uh, there'd been some uh, attacks and some people killed by some Cheyenne Indians. Anyway, as they continued, the roads were rough. The hand carts started to break down due to being lightweight and having been constructed of uh, unseasoned wood. They began to fall apart. So the people were delayed even more because they had to stop to make repairs. So here we are. It's the middle of September. The weather's starting to turn cold. The Mormons start to see the first frosts of the season. So now we're at September 30th. Captain Willie's company arrived at Fort Laramie. They still had 500 miles to get to the Salt Lake Basin. Now, they had thought they could get more provisions, but there wasn't any. From this point, they faced the hardest part of the journey, and winter coming on fast. Now, the situation gets worse as they are also running out of food. Now, because of the difficulty of the climb in the mountains, they began to discard some of their goods, like clothing, bedding. So now it's getting cold. They don't have clothes or shelter. Food is scarce. They face the cold winds and early storms. Now, at this point, some of the weaker don't make it. But they can't take the time to do anything but quickly bury them. There's no time for a proper funeral. So, kind of a sad time as people started falling out. 
Now, behind the Willie Company, the Martin Company is starting to have even more problems because they have more women and children, and they start to lose some of them. Well, when they reached the Sweet Water River, which is not far from present-day Casper, Wyoming, this is where they ran into some extreme winter weather, heavy snows. Well, tragedy strikes as 15 people die and others injured in one day after one of the most severe storms. Well, word reached Brigham Young that these two handcart companies are in a serious situation. They're in danger of freezing, of starving to death. So he organized relief parties. He sent them out with provisions, clothing, and bedding to help them make it to Salt Lake. On the morning of October 7th, the first rescue party left Salt Lake City with 16 wagon loads of food and supplies, pulled by four mule teams with 27 young men serving as teamsters and rescuers. Well, when the rescuers reached the Martin Company, they found a very cold, desperate group huddled down in a ravine between the Sweetwater and the Platte Rivers. Now, you can imagine, folks, they'd about given up all hope uh, when they were finally found. The difficulties of the Willie Company were not over yet. On October 23rd, the second day after the main rescue party had arrived, the Willie Company faced the most difficult section of the trail. This is a place called Rocky Ridge, and they had to pull up this ridge. It was a difficult, difficult climb. It took place during a howling snowstorm through knee-deep snow. That night, 13 of the immigrants died. On October 19, 1856, the Martin Company was about 110 miles further east, making its last crossing of the North Platte River near present-day Casper, Wyoming. Now, shortly after completing the crossing, the blizzard struck. Many members of the company suffered from hypothermia, frostbite, after wading through the ice-cold river. Well, with the help of the rescuers, Captain Willie's company arrived in Salt Lake November 9th, Captain Martin's group made it about three weeks later. Now, both companies, about 213 had perished, but about 880 made it to the basin. Now, other companies with handcarts made the trek in the next few years, but none ever took the chance of leaving later in the year. And actually, less than 10% of the Mormons actually traveled by handcart. Now, most of the wagon trains heading west usually tried to leave early in the season to avoid being caught in early winter storms. Now, the Mormon battalion is another part of the Mormon exodus. Colonel S.W. Kearney asked for Mormons willing to serve for one year in the war with Mexico. So, the Mormon battalion was formed. It was a group of about 500 Mormon men who joined the United States Army in 1846 during the Mexican-American War to help provide financial support for their families and other Mormon pioneers. Now, serving under the direction of Army officers from July of 1846 to July 1847, the Mormon battalion marched nearly 2,000 miles across the southwestern United States. Now, although the battalion actually never engaged in battle, 20 members died during the journey west. It was not easy, folks, uh, even though they never actually engaged in battle. Now, during the march, the battalion encountered herds of ferocious wild cattle, which attacked the troops. Well, obviously, they loaded their guns and commenced firing at the animals. 
This was the only fighting they did on their long trek. When the battle was over, the only victims were a number of gourd mules, some overturned wagons, and about 60 dead cattle. Well, the soldiers of the Mormon Battalion made several contributions to the settlement of the American West. They improved trails as they moved west. Others helped build Fort Moore in Los Angeles. And still others helped build Sutter's Mill in California. And they actually witnessed the discovery of gold there, which actually prompted, of course, thousands of people to migrate to the West Coast. Now, most battalion members eventually reunited with their family members uh, and friends in Salt Lake Valley or even clear back into Iowa and Nebraska. Well, Brigham Young's colonizing efforts didn't start with Salt, uh, stop with Salt Lake City. He began sending Mormons to different parts of the country. Some were sent to southern Utah, as far as St. George, and some into Arizona with settlements along the way. Some families went as far as Mexico, where the Mexican government gave them some land. Now, I actually spoke with a young man whose great-great-grandfather was among the first into Mexico, into the colony. His parents and grandparents were born in Mexico, and he grew up in the Mormon colony in Mexico. Now, he now is married, lives in Utah, has a wife and family. Anyway, other families were sent to southern Idaho. One of these towns, Oakley, Idaho, is just 20 miles south of where I live, right here along the Snake River. Another small town is Alamo, Idaho. Uh, and actually, this little town has a small Pioneer Cemetery that I have visited. And there's a headstone that is engraved that shows a Pony Express rider. And this is for a man named Thomas Owen King, who was a Pony Express rider as a, as a young man and eventually became a Mormon bishop in this little town of Alamo. So, folks, you can see that the Mormons played a big part in settling not just Salt Lake, but towns in the surrounding states of Idaho, Nevada, Wyoming, and uh, so, you know, it was beneficial for the travelers along the Oregon Trail, and it was beneficial for the Mormons because uh, they were able to trade some of their goods for some of the things that the travelers had. So that's kind of the history of the, the uh, Mormon exodus and a brief summary of how Salt Lake City became known as the Crossroads of the West. So, again, as I always mention, if you have comments or thoughts and corrections, I'm always open. So just go to my webpage at dr-history.com and send me a comment, and I will always try to answer your emails. So anyway, folks, that's all for now. Thanks. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.